Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover the entire chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. And I'm going to entitle chapter 3, If You Don't Work, You Don't Eat. Our context is this. Paul has just finished saying at the end of chapter 3, Stand firm and hold to Paul's apostolic traditions. This was right after he discussed the man of sin, that thorny question in at the first part of 2 Thessalonians 2. So here we are now in chapter 3, and let's begin. Verses 1 through 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the Lord's message may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. When Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us, the us is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, because they were mentioned in the salutation in verse 1, chapter 1. Pray for us, apostles, that the Lord's message may spread rapidly, because that's what apostles do. They spread the word. Paul often requests for prayers of Christians for him. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, he says, Brothers, pray for us also. In Romans 15.30, Now I appeal to you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to join with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Paul was never too proud to think that he was a big-shot apostle and he didn't need anybody praying for him. He needed people praying for him. We all do. What was his prayer? That the Lord's message may spread. That's the, the spread of the gospel should be a constant prayer of every Christian. And then he says he wants to be delivered from wicked and evil men. He and Silas and Timothy want to be delivered from evil men. Well, remember, Paul is at Corinth when he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. This is on the second journey. Paul established the church on the second journey, and we can read about the persecution and trouble he endured in Acts 18. For example, in verse 6, we read this, When they resisted and blasphemed, that's the Jews, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And in verse 12 of Acts 18, we read this, While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's Greece, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. So Paul asked for, asked for help in the midst of all this persecution. He says these wicked and evil, they're wicked and evil men down here in Corinth, for not all have faith. That could mean not all are faithful. Not everybody's been faithful to him on the Christian side, but I don't think that's what it means. It's a possibility grammatically, but it means probably not all have saving faith. And those that don't have saving, that don't have saving faith are likely to persecute those of us who do. Now, Paul said he prays that the Lord's message may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Well, when was the message of God's word, God's gospel, when did it spread rapidly and be and honor and when was it honored among the Thessalonians? We'll read in First Thessalonians one six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians four ten. In fact, you are doing this, showing love toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do even more. Even more. So Paul knows that the word of God has spread rapidly and was honored in Thessalonica, just like it was, just like he wanted it to be in other places also. We go now to verse 3, 2 Thessalonians. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. The evil one, of course, is Satan. The Thessalonians needed to be encouraged. They needed to be strengthened because they were being persecuted. We read in Acts 17, 5 through 9. This is when Paul was there previously in Thessalonica on the second Germany journey when he started the church. 
verse 5, starting there. But the Jews became jealous in Acts 17. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them, searched for the apostles, to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. So you see there the Jews were stirring up the magistrates and the mob against the Christians in Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 4 through 5. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love in Christ's endurance. Now Paul has, says he that the Thessalonians will do what, he, what we, meaning Paul, Silas, and Timothy, command. Paul usually doesn't use that word command. He usually urges and exhorts. However, when there's a serious problem, he often turns to the word command. And the problem in Thessalonica, as we'll see, is that they had a bunch of Christians there who weren't working. They were lazy bones. We have confidence in the Lord about you. He doesn't say we have confidence in you. Anytime you put confidence in people, my friends, they are going to fail you. How many times oh, I could just I can count the people that I tried to lead to the Lord and sometimes did lead to the Lord, and then they just walk off chasing money, chasing unsaved boyfriends and husbands and all that kind of stuff. No, you better not put your confidence in people. They're going to disappoint you. Put your confidence that the Lord's going to take care of them after they backslide for a while or after they find their footing as they are tempted by the world and so forth. But Paul says, I've got confidence that, you, that you're going to do right, that you are doing and will do what we command. So you see, he's very positive. He doesn't say, look, you screw-ups. I'm the apostle here and you better obey me. He doesn't act like that at all. He's basically trying to appeal to their sense of honor, their conscience, and he encourages them with what they have already done good before he urges them to do more. This idea of encouraging people to do what Paul commands, we see this in Philippians 1.6 in his letter to the Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was not just concerned with salvation at justification. He was concerned with salvation all the way through the process of sanctification. Second Timothy 1.12, and that is why I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed because I know the one I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard what he has been entrusted to me until that day. Paul has confidence about the future that he will persevere, that he has assurance in his perseverance in Christ that Jesus is not going to leave him in the lurch. Jude 1, verse 24, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. So as you walk, you get justified, you get born again, you got to walk in this life. And Paul says, I'm confident Jesus will keep you from stumbling. Now, folks, that's an important concept because we're all young. We all make mistakes when we're young, even in our natural life. And when you are a young Christian, you're going to make mistakes. You are going to stumble. But not, you're not really going to fall down. I say you're going to stumble. Jude says God is able to protect you from stumbling. I think what Jude means is from stumbling and falling down so you don't ever get up again. Because you're, you're going to make mistakes. But you're not going to stumble ultimately. And you're not going to fall if you just hold on to the Lord. He's not going to let you do that. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love, Paul says in verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 3. Thy God's love could be the love of God. 
for his people or it could be the people's law for God. It could go either way. Grammatically, I think what Paul is saying, may the Lord direct your heart so that you will understand God's love for you. God's love for you. I don't think he's saying, may the Lord direct your heart so that you will know how to love God. Direct your hearts to your love for God. Could be. Could be either one. May the Lord direct your hearts to Christ's endurance. Well, again, that could be Jesus' endurance in the suffering and the persecutions and reproaches of men, as John Gill says. And you can interpret that as the endurance of which Jesus is the author. May the Lord direct your hearts to Christ's endurance that he produces in Christians because he's the author of endurance. So may God direct you to that. Or it could be talking about may the Lord direct you to Christ's endurance, the endurance that he suffered as he put up with all of his persecutions and trials. You need to think about that. That is also ambiguous. It can be ambiguous. It can go either way. doesn't really matter how you take it. We get the general idea. Love and endurance. That's what we need. Love and endurance. Just like Jesus had love and Jesus had endurance. We go now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 6 in chapter 3, verse 6 in chapter 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. Now Paul had mentioned this problem in his first letter in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12. We read this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So you see, there were people at Thessalonica who were not working. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible says these people are acting or walking irresponsibly. Many translations have disorderly. I think the King James says unruly. So it's a little bit different in the English, but it's, you get the idea. Lazy people are irresponsible, and they tend to be unruly because they kind of bounce around from barroom to barroom. Now, in the previous letter, according to Barnes and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, Paul had used the mild language of exhortation about this issue. In 1 Thessalonians 4.10, he says, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, do even more. And then he goes uh, on and says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. We encourage you. However, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, we encourage you to work with your own hands just as we commanded you. So at some point, Paul earlier had commanded them. This is probably, the lazy problem had probably reared its ugly head while Paul was actually in Thessalonica, as recorded in, as he was in Acts 17. Now, Acts 17 doesn't mention this problem, but it probably was there because Paul says, just as we commanded you. Now, it is unknown why these brothers were not working. Here's a good speculation. They expected the Lord to come soon, whether it's 8070 or the end of the world, doesn't matter. 8070 they thought was going to be to set up this messianic kingdom. And then they said, oh, we won't ever have to work again. Won't that be nice? So let's just stop working now. They were irresponsible. How are they irresponsible? Well, in Second Thessalonians 3.11, which we'll get to in just a minute, we read, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That's how they're irresponsible. They're undisciplined, lazy. And when you're lazy and not working, you have time to go around and snoop in other people's business. Paul tells the other Thessalonians who are working to keep away from such people. King James has withdraw yourselves. Now, withdrawing yourselves or shunning, as the Amish used to say, maybe still do, they call it shunning. 
This is what withdrawing as church discipline is not. You don't injure the man's reputation that's not working. You don't hold him up to reprobation. You don't publicly denounce the man. You don't follow him with revenge in your hearts. The goal of all shunning is for restoration. And notice when Paul tells the Thessalonians to keep away from this, brothers, I am assuming that he means only after the first three steps of church discipline are done, as recorded in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. You're supposed to go to the lazy brother first by yourself. Then if he doesn't listen to you and start working, then you bring one or two other brothers with you. That's step two. And you confront him again. If he still doesn't listen to you, then you take it to the whole church, not to the elders, but to the whole church, step three. And then if he still doesn't listen, the whole church decides to shun him. Say, okay, get out of here. In fact, shunning is very... John Gill says that this withdrawing from this brother is the same as excommunication from the church, which is step four in the discipline process from Matthew 18. I think he's probably right. Barnes disagrees with that. I don't know why. He might say that you're just supposed to shun him without going through the processes of church discipline, but I don't believe you should do that because that's serious business when you start giving the cold shoulder to somebody. Paul had referred to in his first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul is concerned about the witness of the church. If outsiders and non-believers start thinking that Christians are a bunch of lazy bums, well, then they are not going to want to convert to the faith. Now, Paul says that these brothers who are walking irresponsibly are not walking according to the tradition received from us. Now, there's three places, three times in the New Testament where tradition is used in a positive sense, and it's the idea of following apostolic tradition is good. Pharisaical tradition, there's ten verses where that's denounced by Jesus. Nothing wrong with denouncing pharisaical traditions, folks, but apostolic traditions are good traditions. There's bad traditions and there's good traditions, and by golly, the tradition that Paul had handed down to the Thessalonians was you're supposed to work work hard, as he himself did. The other two places where he uses traditions in a good sense are in Second Thessalonians 2.15, last chapter. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. First Corinthians 11.2, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And that means traditions not only in word but also in deed. Think about how Paul did churches and how totally unlike his churches are compared to today's churches. They had interactive meetings. They met in homes. They had the Lord's Supper as a full meal every Sunday. They practiced church discipline. I could go on and on. They didn't have canned sermons. They didn't have sermons. They had distributed teaching with different brothers teaching. They had spiritual gifts in the meetings, tongues, prophecies, helps healings and that kind of thing, words of wisdom, words of revelation. They did all kinds of things. Paul's churches are so unlike our churches today. He would come around today and look at the church today and say, what is this? Is this a meatpacking plant? Exactly what is this big warehouse I'm looking at? We go down to Second Thessalonians 3, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. The hour there is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Now, Paul meant for his charges to imitate him. His spiritual people that he was mentoring, that he was mentoring, he meant for them to follow him, to imitate him. Let me give you some scriptures here. 
four scriptures in addition to this one, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. That's the last verse we just read. So not walking according to Paul's tradition is the same thing as not following his example in verse 7. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul tells the Corinthians, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Be an imitator of Christ, uh, of Paul. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You became imitators of us. 2 Thessalonians 3.9, It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. So you see that idea of imitating an apostle, even as he imitates Christ, is is deep within Paul, and we don't hardly, we hardly ever talk about that today. Follow his example, you'll be a happy Christian, my friends. None of this liberal crapola about, well, you know, that Paul, that's just his opinion, but I only follow Jesus. I don't follow Paul. Paul did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Why? Because he worked. First Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, we read, for you recall, brethren, this is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians, for you recall, brethren, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. He worked hard. He worked night and day. He worked up blamelessly. He worked uprightly. He worked devoutly. <laughs> Folks, that's an example to follow. So nobody can say, well, he's just preaching to get rich. He's just preaching to make money. He's telling us we ought to work. He hadn't lifted a finger since he got here. No, nobody's going to say that about Paul. Second Thessalonians 3.8, Paul continues, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. That's interesting. Paul actually paid for food that the Thessalonians might have given him. I can't imagine anybody doing that today. That's... That's really strict, not even taking hospitality with bread. But he didn't do it because he knew what was going on in that church. Now, notice this is during his founding visit to the church, as in Acts 17. The lazy problem apparently had already shown up then while he was still there. So he kept working night and day so that he wouldn't be a burden. So obviously, all of the Thessalonians were not following Paul's example even when he was there. Now, we need to note here, to balance this out, it is still the duty of the church to support those who labor in the gospel just because they weren't doing it in Thessalonica and because Paul is working. That doesn't gainsay the duty that we have to support people who labor in the gospel if they, if they need the support. Galatians 6, 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And that share all good things is talking about food, clothing, money. Now, I'm assuming the teacher needs money. He doesn't. If he doesn't need the money, I don't guess you owe him the, the the duty to support him, of course, I'm sure he wouldn't complain if you gave him some money. But not a salary now, not a salary, donations. So Paul, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, had talked about how he had worked night and day. And so here in the second letter, he says the same thing. He says we kept working night and day. That's interesting, isn't it? Night and day. In other words, how much spare time did he have to teach these guys? I don't know. He somehow managed to do it. And he's not shy about making his point. He said it in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, I work night and day not to be a burden to you. And he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.8, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. He repeated himself almost word for word. I've been working hard, guys. And what have you been doing? 
Paul had two sources of income, by the way, as he was with the Thessalonians. First of all, he had the work from his manual labor, which doesn't say what it is, but it's probably tent making, because we know in Corinth he was working with Aquila and Priscilla with tents, making tents. So his manual labor gave him some income, and also he had support from Philippi. Remember, I don't have the scripture in front of me, but he told the Philippians that you more than once supplied my needs. Now, he probably could have received contributions from at least some of the Thessalonians, but here are three possible reasons why he did not. First of all, it could have been because the Thessalonians were poor, maybe. Here's what Adam Clark says about this. They must have been very poor, seeing he was obliged to work hard to gain himself the necessaries of life. Had they been able to support him, he would not have worked with labor and travail night and day, that he might not be burdensome to them. And as we may presume that they were very poor, he could not have got his support among them without adding to their burdens. Well, maybe so, but the, the problem with Clark's reasoning there is that there are two other reasons why he may not have, might not have worked. And if it, he didn't work for those reasons, then it wasn't because the Thessalonians were poor that he, excuse me, if he didn't take money from the Thessalonians for those two reasons, then it might not be that the Thessalonians were poor that kept Paul from taking money from them. So that's just a possible reason the Thessalonians were poor. Second possible reason is because Paul didn't want his example of not working to be a bad example. So he waived the right to receive. The idle people at Thessalonica could say, Paul doesn't work if he didn't work, so we won't work. So Paul didn't give them the chance. The third possible reason he didn't want to take money from the people he was teaching in Thessalonica is because he didn't want to be accused of mercenary motives. Or it could be a combination of all three. At any rate, folks, if you're going around teaching the gospel, it's better to finance yourself from outside the church or teaching to. If people want, teaching to, if people want to give you money, that's fine. But you better not ask for it, and you better not accept it, and you better not demand it. If I come teach you, I expect this, and you know a lot of crapola that you see these traveling ministers do. Don't do that, especially if it's going to cause reproach to the gospel. Get your money from somewhere else so that nobody can criticize you so that you can be held blameless. Now, Paul says he worked night and day. He also prayed night and day. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Second Timothy 1.3 said the same thing to Timothy. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Now that just might be a an expression like we say 24-7 all the time. It doesn't mean literally night and day. It just means all the time, loosely. Or if you want to be literal about it, that means there's no set time for prayer. You can pray at night as well as you can pray in the daytime. Well, if we just take it as an idiom, it just means a lot. I'm always praying for you. I'm constantly praying for you. I don't stop. That's hard to do because a lot of times you pray for somebody and you don't see a result and you get tired and you don't hear anything from them and you say, oh, my gosh, why do I need to do this? I don't want to pray anymore. It takes a lot of discipline to keep praying, especially when people are screwing up that you're praying for. I've had a hard, hard time with that. Paul says, with labor and hardship, he kept working. In other words, this was not easy work he was doing. It was with labor and hardship. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown make an interesting point. They say Paul mentioned this laboring in both letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. But Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the reason that he mentioned it in the first letter is to vindicate himself from mercenary motives. That was option number three I just gave you. But his object in the second letter was to give an example of hard work to keep the Corinthians from acting slothfully. 
I don't know how, if we can really be that precise about why he mentioned it in both letters. I just think it's easier to say all three motives, all three reasons why he didn't take money. So he mentioned it in both letters. What are those three reasons? Reason number one, the Thessalonians were maybe poor and they couldn't afford to support him. Reason number two, he didn't want his example of not working to be a bad example for laziness. Reason number three, he didn't want to be accused of mercenary motives. And I'm just going to say he mentioned it, mentioned his not working in both letters for all three of those reasons. Now, it's interesting. Paul is writing from Corinth. He has the same problem down there. People are questioning his motives. So he didn't work. He didn't, he didn't take money from the Corinthians either. Boy, he, I mean, think about this compared to modern missionary methods. He wanted to keep false teachers in Corinth from impugning mercenary motives to him. We read in 2 Corinthians 11:9, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, that's from Philippi, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. 2 Corinthians 11:12, But what I am doing, I will continue to do. That means not taking money. So that, I may, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. In other words, these false apostles who were boasting like they were an apostle like Paul. He says, I'm going to cut off their opportunity. They're not going to say I'm preaching for mercenary motives because I'm not taking any money. We go to verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul continues, not because we do not have the right to this, the right to, to receive financial support. I guess I ought to go back to verse 8 and pick it up. We're in the middle of a sentence here. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it in verse 8, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9, not because we do not have the right to this, in other words, the right for money from you. Yeah, they, he had the right, but in order to offer ourselves as a model to you so that you would follow our example. Now, Paul is explicit about the reason here. He doesn't want to be a bad example. The other two Reasons that the Thessalonians were poor and that the Thessalonians might have accused him of mercenary motives. He doesn't mention. He just mentions the example reason. He doesn't want the lazy bones to have a bad example. He mentions it here. So he says, I want you to follow my example, Thessalonians, or our example, Paul, Silas, and Timothy's example. I'm assuming those other guys worked along with Paul. Now, this imitation idea, Paul mentions it all over the place. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Tradition, that which I handed down to you. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. So this idea of imitating Paul, as I've mentioned over and over again, is extremely important. Now he says he has the right to financial support. He mentions that. I'm going to mention four scriptures showing that a laborer is worthy of his hire, that he has the right to financial support. 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Now, wages there is metaphorical. Nowhere do we find paid salaries to clergymen. I know that that's, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness about that, but if I were a pastor of a church, I would never allow a church to pay me wages. I'd allow them to give me gifts, voluntary gifts, privately if they want to. But I would not demand it of them. Just like Paul did not demand any support in Thessalonica and Corinth. However, if they want to give it to me, that's fine. Those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.14 In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So, you know, 
especially with apostles because they're moving around. Elders can work at home work at home and locally, but apostles are moving. It's hard for them to have jobs to make money. Paul did it with tent making, but that was hard and laborious work. So it's good if you give traveling people money. Not while they're preaching in front of you, but when they're on the road, send them some money. It's a lot easier to do it now, by the way, with PayPal and the Internet compared to back then you had to run a messenger. Here's some other scriptures talking about the right to financial support for Christian workers. 1 Corinthians 9, 4 through 6. Do we not have a right, talking about apostles, do we apostles not have a right to eat and drink? A right? Do we not have a right to take a longer believing wife? Verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Barnabas was an apostle like Paul, and that's a rhetorical question. He said, yeah, Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working. Now, of course, they waived that right for practical reasons, but they had the right. They had the abstract right, at least. Galatians 6, 6, the one who was taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. There you go. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, For even when we were with you, we used to give this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's how we know that the lazy bones problems, problem was in existence even as Paul was in Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when they were starting the church, Acts 17. Verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 3, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Busybodies in quiet fashion is interesting there because people that don't work, they got time to run around and gossip, tell tales, run their mouths. So we're saying quit working your mouth and start working your hands. Start making some money. Eat your own bread instead of bumming it off of other people. Your own bread, that's an implication is they're getting bread from somebody else. Now when Paul says in verse 10... If you're not willing to work, if he is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. This means not to eat at the expense of the church, as Barnes points out. Paul didn't mean that he wanted them to starve. He meant, hey, if he's not going to work, he's going to get his food somewhere else, but not from the church. There might be some deserving widows in the church that need the food a lot better than his lazy bones does. This, if you're not, he who does not work does not eat, was a proverb among the Jews, as Gill and Clark says, and it's really almost a proverb in the English language, too. We hear it so much. Paul says in verse 11, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. How did he hear it? Could have come from anybody. We don't know, as Barnes says, but it could have come through Timothy. Paul had split from Timothy and Silas at Berea on the second journey. He had gone on to Corinth by way of Athens, and Timothy and Silas had gone back up into Macedonia. Now, how they did this is extremely complicated. I've mentioned it in previous audios. There's speculations, there's ifs and contingencies and all that. But anyway, Timothy went back up. And he had probably gone back up into the Thessalonican church. I think it might even explicitly say that somewhere. I can't remember. But at any rate, he had come back and met Paul along with Silas. He had come back to Corinth, and Timothy could have said, this is what's going on at Thessalonica. You still got a bunch of lazy bones in Thessalonica not working, just like it was when we were there to start with in Acts 17. So Paul's got to get on them again. He says in verse 12, Now such persons we command and exhort. The exhort is the nice word. The command is a little bit stronger. He has moral authority. Now, by the way, when he says command, he doesn't have ecclesiastical, bureaucratic command, legal command, a command that arises from status. He's talking about his command with moral authority as an apostle. The church has command of its own internal workings, whether it's discipline, excommunication, all that kind of stuff. That's up to the church. It was up to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians 
to deal with these lazy people. So this is just his moral authority here from which he's exhorting and commanding. And the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. I've already mentioned this. I'll mention it again. He had commanded them earlier in the earlier letter, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. So he's talk, talking strong here. Now he's talking about people who are not willing to work. In verse 10 he says, we used to give you this order if anyone is not willing to work. He is obviously not talking about the lame, the halt, and the blind, the people that can't work, the people that are disabled, people that are too old, they're sick. As John Gill points out, obviously not. This idea of not working and having time to be a busybody is not only mentioned here, but also in 1 Timothy 5.13. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, talking about certain women in the church there. Not And not merely idle, they're not working, but also gossips and busybodies. So the idea of idle, not working, is tied with being a gossip and busybody. Talking about things not proper to mention. What is that old proverb, idle hands is the devil's the devil's playground or something? I forgot how the proverb goes. You hear it all the time. you got to keep yourself busy, especially when you're quarantined in a coronavirus pandemic. Keep yourself busy. Maybe go out and protest the government. They won't let you go out to work. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. A quiet life. Attend to your own business. Don't be a busybody. So the idea of idleness and busybodiness goes together in Paul's mind. Now, Paul is saying work. He's talking about work here. If anyone is not willing to work, Adam Clark's got a nice little slogan here, a little saying, quote, Industry is crowned with God's blessing. Idleness is loaded with his curse. Now, that's the truth. There ain't nothing worse than people that won't work. It makes everybody angry at them. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Now the King James margin has faint not. But as for you, brethren, faint not as you do good. Adam Barnes says that the Greek means here, don't be a coward. The idea is don't be afraid to say no to the lazy people who are demanding money from you and food from you. So don't be a coward and do good by refusing to give them money. I think that's kind of a stretch. I think that the real meaning of this is given by John Gill, who says, Paul is probably worried that his prohibition of giving money to the idol might be misconstrued. And so then the Thessalonians would take that prohibition and go too far with it and say, we're not going to give money to poor people, to the sick, the lame, the halt, the blind, the disabled. We're not going to get, we're going to grow weary of doing good for them because we're not giving money to the lazy bones. And this, my friends, is the basic principle of charity. You don't give money to people who don't work, but to people who can't work, you give money. Now, government welfare systems have had a horrible time trying to distinguish those two. How many times people gone into stores with food stamps and game the system? I, I talked to somebody who did this and ended up buying alcohol with and go out and get drunk on their food stamps. So, you know, so the taxpayers supporting not charity, but welfare that is contrary to the welfare of the person receiving it. That happens all the time. And it's, I remember reading English history back in the 1600s, the English Poor Relief Acts. They had poor houses back then. They had the same problem. Do the people that we put in the poor house, they're doing better than they were out on the streets when they weren't working. So they're not working in the poor. Well, they had to work in the poor house, but they had, they had to cut off the level of support at a certain level of people would just not work. Same thing with the coronavirus stimulus payments here. It was said that 
people receiving more money for staying home than going back to work. They were receiving the stimulus money because their businesses were shut down or their jobs were shut down, and now they're making more money with the stimulus check, so it's better to stay home rather than go back to work, which is counterproductive. Anyway, so that's the sort of idea that always comes up when you're trying to help the poor. And it could be that Paul is worried that the Thessalonians are going to overreact against this idea of not giving money to lazy people, and they're going to quit giving money to the poor, which, of course, would be not something he would want. Now, when Paul says, do not grow weary of doing good, whatever that good is, giving money or whatever else, don't grow weary about it. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about growing weary, getting discouraged. Luke 18:1. this is Jesus. He then told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not become discouraged. It is easy, my friends, to become discouraged in this life. 2 Corinthians 4.1. And the way you don't get discouraged is to pray always, Jesus says. Don't stop praying. Don't become discouraged. 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Don't give up, Paul tells the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not give up. Galatians 6, 9, so we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Ephesians 3, 13, so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. So you see, Paul is dealing with discouragement a lot in his ministry. I'm sure he got discouraged too. I think it happens to everybody. Don't give up, he says. Don't grow weary of doing good. We go now to 2 Thessalonians 3.14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. This assumes that the brother's got enough good in him to be ashamed because all of his Christian brothers are now not eating with him. And so he says, oh, maybe I better start working. Now, the, when it, Paul says, take note of that person, the King James Margin has signify that man by an epistle. No one's write a letter to everybody and say, this guy's not working. Barnes says the margin is probably not correct. Well, the idea is not, maybe not send a letter to the person who's not working, but send a letter to Paul to tell me who's not working. And Barnes says, Paul didn't need to know that. That's an internal church matter. He's telling the Thessalonians to take note of the person, see who it is that's not working, and don't associate with him. The Amish call it shunning him. Now, I'm assuming, of course, that the three steps of church discipline were done, done beforehand. In Matthew 18, you don't just shun somebody without investigating them and going through all the procedural hurdles that you need to do before you exercise discipline on somebody. We go down to 2 Thessalonians 3.15. Yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Remember the purpose of church discipline is not to destroy the disciplined brother. It is to restore him. In fact, I noticed the Holman Christian Study Bible in Matthew 18 when, it, when the church discipline process is laid out by Jesus. The header of the translators put over that section, 18 verses 15 through 20, I think it is, Matthew 18. The header they put over that section is restoring a brother. They don't even mention church discipline. They say restoring a brother because that tends to be forgotten when we use the term church discipline. You know, it's not the goal of a parent when a parent disciplines a child to destroy the child. is to help the child fly right, to make him happy because you love the child. That's why you discipline him. And that's why we should discipline a brother by shunning him is to because we love him and we want him to do better. And I'm telling you, it's hard sometimes to have positive thoughts toward Christians who are really screwing up and sinning, especially if they're hurting you or giving your church a bad name. You know, it's just hard. There's a young 
pastor I know right now that's committing, that's uh, thinking about contemplating very hard committing adultery and about to cause a bunch of people to stumble, including one of my Chinese converts. I am extremely upset with this guy. And discipline needs to be done on the guy, but it's hard for me to have the attitude that, hey, he needs to be restored. He did a good work for the gospel while he was flying right. Did a good work with my Chinese convert. Basically discipled her. And doggone it now, he's found some other woman, fortunately not my student, but another woman who meets his needs and makes him feel alive. And his wife just bores him. Same old stupidity that adulterers always delude themselves with when they go in uh, go down the path of sin and destruction. Second Thessalonians 3:16 through 18 will finish up this chapter and the book. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and every way. The Lord be with all of you. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. This is a sign in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Now you recognize the standard sign-offs that Paul uses. Grace, peace. He always he likes those words, grace and peace. He might be referring here peace because the unruly brethren in Thessalonica might have been causing division and turmoil and chaos or maybe just trouble. And Paul's saying, hey, you can have peace if they'll just stop working and you stop associating with these people. Or he could be talking about the fact that you're now at peace with God. He's no longer your enemy. The war's over. You've been reconciled to him. He says, give you peace always and every way. Yes, sir, buddy. Nothing better than peace, nothing worse than strife. The Lord be with all of you and all your troubles and all your life. The greeting is in my own hand. Paul, this is one of the few times he actually signs the letter, signs it. Paul, P-A-U-L, except it's in Greek, of course. Why would he want to do that? To prove, because he used secretaries, amanuenses, to write his letters, and then he wrote the last several verses to prove that it was him that was writing to a guard against fake letters. And we know he already had, he had reason to be concerned about fake letters. In Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, he's mentioned fake letters. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in minor trouble, either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter, as if from us. Well, how do you guard against that? You sign it in your own hand, and when people start recognizing your signature, they'll know that this is a true letter, not a fake one. This is a sign in every letter, this is how I write, not the signing of his name, Paul, because he didn't do that in every letter, but in every letter we assume that he actually wrote the last several lines in his own hand, even if, if, even if he didn't sign Paul, Paul to the letter. Jameson Foss and Brown say this, wherever Paul does not subjoin this autograph salutation, in other words, his signature, we may presume he wrote the whole epistle himself. Well, maybe so, then that would really show that he didn't have he didn't have a secretary we could really know it was his handwriting so either by his handwriting or his signature we know that that's how paul wrote let me repeat this thing about signing his name to every letter jameson fawson brown pointed this out to me paul did not sign his name to every letter he likely alludes to writing in his own hand the closing of every letter even those letters where he doesn't mention anything about having done so so there's three things to keep straight here did he sign his name did he write the last few lines in his own hand and mention it or did he write the last few lines in his own hand and not mention it or did he write there's more than three things or did he write the last few lines or did he not write the last few lines and not sign it did his amanuensis do it well i suspect that he at least wrote the last few lines in his own hands to guard against counterfeit 
even though he doesn't allude to doing it in every letter. For example, in Romans, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and 1 Thessalonians, he doesn't mention it. But he probably did it anyway. He does mention it in a lot of letters, such as this one. Now notice he says, he finishes up the book, the letter, 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. That includes the unruly brethren. That includes the lazy bones. He wants them to have grace too. Paul is not interested in destruction. He's interested in restoration. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished the book of 2 Thessalonians. In our next audio, we will look at Paul's prison epistle to his good friend and spiritual son and brother, Timothy. 1 Timothy, we'll take that up in the next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that one and hope you enjoyed this one.